How does occupational licensing increase barriers for workers? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Darwin Deo. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Darwin Deo. Darwin is Assistant Professor of Economics at San Jose State University, where she researches law and economics and health economics. She's published on occupational licensing and service quality, the economics of crime, and healthcare regulation in the past. She is also a research affiliate at the Knee Center for the Study of Occupational Regulation at West Virginia University and serves as the president of the Society for Economics, Representation, and Networking. Darwin earned her doctorate in economics and master's in economics from George Mason University and previously worked as a journalist covering political news out of Pennsylvania. Darwin, welcome to The Curious Task. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me here. And it's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a theme in question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how does occupational licensing increase barriers for workers? And I'd like to start with some 101 on this topic and then go from there. I think on the podcast before in our many episodes, we've touched on occupational licensing and some some topics have gone a bit in depth into it, but I don't think we've ever done a a full out, let's talk occupational licensing episode before. So I'd like to start right from the top for our listeners who might be used to this topic, uh, just as a refresher or even someone who doesn't know much about it and just wants to learn right from the get go. So at at the highest level, what do we mean by occupational licensing? Let's say someone has never heard this term before. What would you say to them is what we're talking about today? Absolutely. So occupational licensing is a major labor market regulation. That's how you can think about it first. It raises barriers for people trying to work in their chosen occupations. So you can think of occupational licensing like a permission slip to work from the government. This is usually state governments, but it would be provinces in Canada. Uh, You can also think about cities uh, licensing occupations, and there are some licenses from federal governments or national governments. Uh, People will often have to complete years of education and training, pass state exams, and pay thousands of dollars in fees, among other requirements, before they can even begin to work in the occupation. And there's no guarantee they'll get the license even after completing the requirements. It, it is all up to the licensing boards. Without, working without a license in a regulated occupation can lead to hundreds of dollars in criminal penalties or even jail time. And importantly, occupational licensing has grown dramatically over the last half century. So it's not just a few or a handful of occupations. It can be hundreds of occupations. Right. And and just to follow up on something you said there about like, you know, there's boards that regulate this stuff and there's basically, I guess, license giving bodies. Um, if, if the regulation tends to be set at, like you said, the uh, the federal, the state slash provincial or even local level, um, often sometimes we hear about, you know, for instance, chartered accountants in Canada have a certain body that regulates them. How does that work? Does the state basically re- delegate the regulation of the actual licensing to certain associations or take us through that? Sure. So the... The process is going to vary by occupation, by state, by province. There's no cohesive approach to how states or provinces regulate this. Associations that represent occupations will often work with legislators and to try to craft legislation regarding the occupation. Uh, But licensing boards are usually the agency that manages the licensing, which includes reviewing applications, processing 
licenses, reviewing any issues, handling disciplinary actions, and so forth. Those are usually staffed by people who currently work in the occupation, and they are sometimes run through the state directly, or they are otherwise delegated by the state. Okay. And, and, you know, essentially, I think you, I heard you say, basically, it's like effectively like a license to work or to do a, a, a sort of profession. But in, in your research, and I know that this varies across different professions, and there's so much variance here. But is, is it typically sort of like an, an outright ban? Like, if you don't have this license, you can't do this task? Or in some cases, do you find that these are sort of like, for lack of a term here, I'm running with like, sort of like graduated privileges. Like if you don't have this license, you might not be able to do X, but if you do have the license, you can do Y, like what kind of formats do you usually see out there for a license haver? So this is a great question because both actually apply depending on the occupation. So one type of license could be that if you do not have the license, you cannot work in the occupation at all. So, for example, you can think of barbers, which are universally licensed by all 50 states and the District of Columbia in the United States. Um, So you get the license to be a barber in a state. Um, Without that license, you cannot work in the occupation legally. But you can also think of a lot of contractor and construction type of occupations, which in Canada, uh, you guys have this under your skilled trades category. And so you can think about these as having staggered levels. So you can think about apprentice levels, uh, journeyman levels, and master level um, licenses for different levels of the license in the United States. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And, and what are the, t- again, I know it's, there's, there's lots of different variants of this. So there's no one answer size fits all, but typically what are the kinds of things you see as the criteria to obtain an occupational license? Is it simply hours under one's belt? Is it certain types of post-secondary credentials plus hours under one's belt? Is it just a whole sort of host of things? What are the kinds of things you typically see that someone needs to do to qualify even to essentially apply for the license itself? Right. So this is a great question because there's a lot of variation in what states and potentially provinces cover um, in their licensing requirements. I will get back to the province issue later because that is a data issue. But in the United States, we can see um, education and experience requirements, which usually translate into either formal schooling. So somebody has to go uh, complete either a trade school or a college level course and courses to complete a degree before they can work in the occupation. Um, They will have to potentially complete an apprenticeship, which would be uh, either unpaid work or lower paid work than they would normally be paid at if they were just working in the occupation. And this can be years. So one example that we have in our uh, 2022 uh, study of 102 occupations uh, that is licensed to work, we find that interior designers actually require on average six years of education before they can work in the occupation in the three states that actually license this occupation in the United States. So in addition to education and experience requirements, uh, states and provinces will require exams. So after you've completed all of the potentially years of education and training, potentially accrued thousands of dollars in student loans um, as well, and given up working full time because you're completing education and experience requirements, you then would have to pass state mandatory exams, um, which are sensitive to like the pass rate of changes basically when you have you have to pass mandatory state exams before you can practice in an occupation. 
You will also have to pay often thousands of dollars in licensing fees. These are non-refundable. So if the licensing board decides to not give you the license, they don't have to refund you. These can be extremely prohibitive for people who are from lower income households. Uh, when we think about the opportunity cost associated with paying these fees just for the chance to work in an occupation, it can become quite expensive. And then we can think about other similar types of requirements that are minimum grade requirements, which are usually high school completion requirements, and uh, the minimum age requirements that require you to usually be 16 or 18 years of age. Uh, the minimum grade requirement can actually be difficult for people who did not graduate from high school. And so this can be another way that licensing restricts entry into an occupation. So uh, for, for the next question I had asked sort of like, so you had briefly touched on previously the types of penalties one might see if they were to practice or do a certain job uh, without a license. Uh, you know, you talked about fines and that those kind of like uh, repercussions. But I guess there's also a flip side to that too, which is that... Um, even if one does have a license, from my understanding, it's not that they're just, you know, all of a sudden you have a license, go free, practice the the job or do the job the way you want, for example. I think, you know, you're still under a sort of regime of regulation even when you have a license, if I understand it correctly. Yes, Alex, that's correct. So one function that licensing boards continue to execute as part of the day-to-day -day operations of licensing is to review potential cases for disciplinary action. So, for example, if a customer says that there was an issue with this licensed worker, uh, potentially they did subpar work or they committed some type of crime, they can report the issue to the licensing board, which can investigate an, the incident and then potentially impose sanctions or revoke the license. So this is definitely a measure that licensing boards have on hand to ensure compliance with certain standards. It is worth noting, it is not the only measure we have as a society to ensure that customers are protected, uh, that public health and safety standards are being upheld and so forth. But this is one function that licensing boards actually uh, execute as part of their operations. Mm -hmm. and, and one more definitional thing before I, I move into some other stuff here. Um, I find that when I've discussed this topic with people, um, it's about here when they hear a bit more about it, that they sort of tend to, at least in my view, and I don't blame them, get a little confused or turned around between the idea of like an actual license to do something or recognition that you have a skill. For instance, this whole, you know, licensing versus like certification discussion, because in some cases and in some jurisdictions, at least that I, way I understand it, is the state might certify someone in something and recognize them as capable of doing something, but not necessarily prevent other people from doing something. Maybe they just don't have the certification. So am I, am I correct about that, that there, it is important to like make a distinction between like a license and like a certification? Because I find people sometimes conflate the two and it sort of messes up the conversation a little. Yes, you were right, Alex. So licensing and certification are not the same thing, but I want to unpack that a little bit more. So licensing is usually considered the uh, license to practice. Um, so this is to actually work in the occupation. We can also think about a different type of license, which is a license to title. So this is, for example, saying that you are a certified manicurist, ah, yes. but you do not necessarily need that license to title to practice in the profession. You cannot say that you are, for example, a certified manicurist without the license to title, but you could still work as a manicurist. 
So that's an important distinction. The license to title is a less restrictive measure uh, for the labor supply for an occupation. And then the licensing versus certification discussion can be teased out as well between state level certification and voluntary certification. So for example, you can have certification that is required by the state that becomes very similar to licensing if you are prohibited from working in the occupation, but it is still less prohibitive. And the, the, the exact type and definition will vary by occupation and by state, but it is less restrictive than licensing. Whereas voluntary certification, usually done through private agencies and the private market, will actually just signal to consumers that the worker or the business has met a certain certification standard, they are recognized, and they are safe to basically, um, they are someone the consumer can trust to work with. And so one example of this is AMCO certification for mechanics in the United States. So mechanics are not licensed by states in the United States. Uh, they work on our cars. Uh, we, we trust them to do so uh, and make repairs. But AMCO provides certification for mechanics uh, so that you can go to an AMCO certified mechanic and expect that you're going to have a higher level of quality work done on your car than without the certification. Right. That makes sense. No, so, so all of that and that what I'll call the first section of our conversation was great. I mean, we covered a lot of the, the sort of 101, the what is, got into some conceptual differences. We even got into certification and licensing differences. Like that's, that's great. So with all of that in mind, as a great introduction to what it is really we're talking about here today, before we get into your findings and the kind of effects that you feel and, and have found that these types of practices have on labor markets and the economy overall and so on and so forth, I just want to give sort of the stage a fair shake here. Like in, in your mind, what is the stated intent of occupational licensing? Like if we want to do a, a fair statement, you know, just thinking intentions only here, the folks that are proponents of occupational licensing in your experience typically say what? Why is this needed? This is a really important question, Alex, because the stated purpose of occupational licensing is to protect public health and safety. And that's something that we as consumers want, right? So the classic examples usually involve uh, doctors and physicians. Uh, when people think of occupational licensing, they usually are thinking of doctors and lawyers. They aren't thinking of interior designers or florists or barbers or all the other different types of occupations that are licensed. But we can also think about whether or not licensing achieves those goals. So one issue is that oftentimes licensing is passed with no connection to a clear public health or safety goal. When the licensing is first passed, the evidence does not actually link to any issue that may be happening. Um, and we can consider other alternatives that might more effectively protect public health and safety without the anti-competitive effects that licensing has. So we can think about this as a cost-benefit question. So we know that licensing has costs for workers trying to enter the market, for consumers buying services in the marketplace, um, and we can think about the benefits. What is the actual benefit that we get from licensing? But the stated goal is to protect public health and safety. So you wouldn't want, for example, an unlicensed neurosurgeon operating on your brain. And I think everybody can relate to that question. But an unlicensed interior designer or an unlicensed barber does not present the same kind of public health and safety issue. And we have other methods for ensuring 
that quality is met as a more general term for public health and safety without compromising entry into the profession. Right. And and I'd actually like to follow that train of thought and that distinction uh, that you made, because I think it's it's actually good to sort it out that way before everything gets jumbled. You're absolutely correct. So the, if the public health and, and, and safety is the stated goal of occupational licensing, I'm going to leave um, things that are more directly related to that. Like you just brought up like, you know, doctors in the medical field and so on, putting them aside for a sec and just focusing on the kinds of things you would see uh, under an occupational license regime, like, you know, the interior designers, florists and so on, just those types of things where there's little to no, by most people's opinion, probably, um, direct link to public health and safety, what would you say the ultimate effects are then of occupational licensing? Is it just that there, there in your mind, is more uh, costs and negatives than any kind of benefit through this process? Is the, is the whole thing just, for, you know, for lack of a better word, just like a, a, a total crap show and then basically like, you, you know, we should get rid of it? Like as far as the not so linked to public health and safety stuff, at a high level, like where do you come down? So we can think about this as a cost-benefit analysis question, right? And we can think about the piece of we need data on the costs and we need data on the benefits. The big challenge for any research on occupational licensing has been we don't have a lot of data on public health and safety outcomes that are linked to professions. So there were earlier studies that were done on electrician licensing, in the 1980s. And they those authors found that there was actually what we call a Cadillac effect uh, from licensing. So electricians became licensed. It raised the cost of hiring an electrician. Instead, people tried to fix their own wiring at home. And this led to more house fires. Mm-hmm. So this became a negative unintended consequence. But in my research, for example, I use uh, Yelp consumer ratings to evaluate whether licensing improves quality. And we are just taking this from the consumer's perspective, right? So I focus on a set of personal services, including barbers and cosmetologists, manicurists, and massage therapists. And so that was part of my dissertation research, actually. Mm -hmm. And so uh, barbers and cosmetologists are licensed in all the states, but there's variation in the level of the requirements. And what I was finding was that licensing actually, in some cases, reduced consumer ratings compared to either no licensing for an occupation or less licensing for an occupation. And so we can think about the anti-competitive effects that may be happening with some of the licensing requirements that are, instead of ensuring a minimum level of quality, as is the uh, stated intention of licensing policies, you actually get this negative effect. So what we do have a lot of data on, and we have many studies at this point spanning several decades, is the uh, effects on competition. So the first and simplest way to measure this is with impacts to labor supply. How many people can work in an occupation? So for context today in the United States, about 22% of workers need a license to do their job. Uh, That's in the civilian sector. Um, the reduction to labor supply is actually estimated at 17 to 27%. And that's across a mix of occupations. Um, You can also think about higher wages for people who do have the license. So in the United States, uh, estimates run between 4% to 6%, which 
is uh, not too different from some other estimates we've seen for other types of labor market regulations, or even up to 11%. In Canada, the estimate is that the wage premium is about 15.5%. And you might be asking yourself, why is this a problem? People are getting paid more. That sounds like a good thing. But they're getting paid more because fewer people have the option to work in the occupation. So this is coming from keeping people from working in the occupation. And those costs are passed on to consumers. So that raises uh, prices for consumers at the end. And so these are all the kind of negative effects that we would see from the higher costs of licensing. And then we compare those with the benefits. So we are still seeing uh, research now that is trying to evaluate the benefit side, essentially asking the question, does licensing achieve its stated goal? And so we are starting to get some data sets together that try and address this. So my research looks at this. I did an update to my dissertation where I looked at the Yelp uh, data again um, and found, again, some evidence that licensing reduces uh, ratings compared to having no licensing. Um, we also see a lot of studies in this area that find that licensing essentially has no effect whatsoever on the quality metric. Uh, we find evidence that consumers don't particularly care if the um, worker they're hiring is licensed or not. What they want to know is, are they any good? And they will often use uh, ratings and reviews to evaluate that. And so this is an important developing area of research to evaluate whether licensing achieves its intended goals. But the current evidence suggests that at best it's neutral and sometimes it can even make things worse. Mm. And, and I think like if you were to talk to somebody about just, you know, let's say getting rid of occupational licensing and X, Y, Z, ABC fields, um, many people might either start out relatively neutral or even just be on board. If you're talking about things like, you know, uh, florists and barbers and so on and so forth, uh, many people can use their common sense and imagine, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? A bad haircut, a bad floral arrangement. You know, I don't mean to be facetious, but there is an extreme end to this. Of course, when you get into plumbing and electrician, even some people might understand that, you know, all things considered, it might be it would be better if we had more people able to enter the labor market and so on and so forth. The costs coming down for consumers, but and that's sort of why I want to put aside the uh, the medical field for a second. So now I'll return to it because some might say, just sight unseen of any data, that I don't care if uh, a, a neurosurgeon having a license raises costs and prevents other people from getting into the field. I've heard people often say that's actually what I, I would prefer. It costs more, but I know the person working on my brain surgery is licensed. It, you know, it, it, if there's a case to be made for certain costs to be passed on to the consumers or to the states in, in a public health care system or whatever else, do you think it's actually with these, let's call them key public and obvious public health and safety areas? Or maybe not. Maybe you found something that, that contradicts that. So when it comes to just these folks, is there a case to be made that there are some costs that are acceptable? Well, what I would say to these folks is what we want is for there to be a link between licensing and achieving the public health and safety goal. The legislatures can review current licensing laws to evaluate whether or not they are even targeted towards achieving these goals. In the United States, uh, a recent study found that only about 25% of the course curriculum for barbers and cosmetologists actually dealt with public health and safety outcomes. Um, so we can think about, is there evidence for an issue? And 
If so, does licensing actually target that issue? Uh, keep in mind, a lot of licensing um, for many professions is just an entry-level license. So there are some professions where they do actually have continuing education requirements, and that's a separate case. But we can think about the marginal effects, which may be limited, of having just an upfront cost where somebody pays a lot of money, pays the fees, completes the applications, and then after that, they don't actually have to comply with ongoing review unless somebody reports them to a licensing board, for example. So to reiterate, the legislatures can review whether or not licensing is actually uh, meeting a public health and safety goal. They can see if there's evidence that there is an issue of this uh, public health and safety topic. For example, you can think about um, manicurists, right? So you can think about the health component of manicurists, where they're cleaning your nails and, and they're trimming and doing all of this. What is the extent of the problem? Um, does licensing achieve it? Um, and the other question that's worth asking is, should we review any other options, right? So is there another way to achieve these? In some cases, it's possible that licensing will be the least cost, most effective way to achieve a public health and safety goal. But many other options exist, including state certification, registration, bonding, and insurance. For example, doctors have to have malpractice insurance. Um, you can use inspections for a lot of occupations. We always use uh, inspections for restaurant safety uh, in the United States. So there's a health inspector that comes in and checks that everything is okay. This is a spot check. It's it's usually random. They don't know that the inspector is coming that day. This can ensure quality in a more consistent way as opposed to just having an upfront cost. Um, and you can actually achieve the public health and safety goal that way. We can think about methods like consumer ratings, uh, like people can signal like this contractor was really good or this contractor was terrible. Um, if the contractor doesn't have insurance, don't use them, that kind of thing. Um, so there, there's a wide range of options. And it's possible that in some cases, licensing may be the least cost, most effective way to achieve it. But we can think about the scale of licensing today in the United States. So estimates put the, that estimates for the United States indicate that only about 5% of the US workforce needed a license in the 1950s. Today, we are up to about 22%. That is rapid growth across hundreds of occupations. In Canada, you have about 11% as of 2014. Um, in Canada, you have about 11% of your workforce that needs a license as of 2014. So we can think about the restrictive entry elements that are starting to grow and creep to more and more occupations. And with that, we're actually at the point, and I think it's an excellent point anyway, to take our break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Darwin Deo today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Darwin Deo today. So, Darwin, I think the first half was great. We covered a lot of ground. I'm going to 
pick right back up where we left off basically towards the end of the first half, which is, uh, you know, I sort of, you know, threw at you like sort of, you know, in some cases, would occupational licensing be necessary type of question? That was a general thrust of what we were talking about. And, and you ended off there saying, you know, there's lots to look at. And, you know, and, and yes, in some cases that it might be the case, but again, that's, that's sort of a nuanced conversation. And one of the nuances that I want to get back to that you mentioned, that I think is very important is you said, and I'll just make it a theoret, a, a hypothetical thing. Let's say you and I, we do a bunch of research and we do find an area where we say, okay, this specific profession or this specific task, it occupational licensing is the best way to maintain, you know, uh, public health and safety. One nuance you touched on though, I thought was very interesting is that, but then what that license is actually doing is very important, right? Because it's one thing to say something should be licensed. It's another thing for, you know, for example, just to be funny, uh, you know, a neurosurgeon to also require, you know, like two semesters of history or something like that in that license, right? So I think that's actually a key point of this discussion that people often miss is that the license is ultimately a bundle and a package of things that someone has to do. It's not just a um, sort of skills check. Is is that a fair statement? Are a lot of sort of licenses actually experiences sort of like a credential inflation or a, you know, a, a back end sort of a, a bunch of baggage that really has nothing to do with the skill check? We do not yet have a study of all the credential requirements and what goes into them for all the states and occupations or in Canada for all the provinces. But we do have anecdotal evidence that suggests what you were saying, Alex. So one strategy to think about this is to consider what goes into the licensing requirement and make sure that it is as least burdensome as it possibly can be while still achieving its stated goal. So we can think about, does do the fees need to be this high? How many exams are necessary? Uh, how much time do people need to spend in school before they can begin working? So there's a lot of options that we can consider and setting aside the neurosurgeon example, right? Uh, we can think about the wide range of occupations that people work in that are still licensed. And there's such a wide variety. Uh, we have 102 occupations in the uh, Institute for Justice's License to Work report, which I worked on last year. Um, but there's many other occupations that are licensed across the states. And we can think about the degree to which these are necessary. So one example we can think about is shampooers, which are licensed in many U.S. states. These are licensed usually under the full cosmetology license. But all these people are doing is shampooing hair, which is something you and I do every day at home. Right. And so the question becomes, why do you need a license to shampoo hair in a salon? Is the salon equipped to make sure that the shampooer they hired is doing a qualified job or not? Is something else going on? So this is a the kind of uh, occupation you can think about when reviewing the extent and burdens of occupational licensing. Right. And I, I like to shift gears into a, a different angle of the conversation, although, of course, it will connect with many of the things we already talked about. Because um, you were, of course, talking about the costs of occupational licensing. We talked about many things that the existence of licensing does. And, uh, of course... Um, like many things that the state does or imposes, uh, the effects are not equal among all kinds of peoples and so on and backgrounds. So, of course, in your work, and and I saw in the, the nice chunk of notes you sent over for me to prepare for this episode today, um, you do have some research in a paper also about the, the effect on women specifically in occupational licensing. Of course, this is one group that might be, uh, you know, affected by occupational licensing in a particular way. But my, my general question, and of course, we can use that as the example, but my general question is, do you find that these regimes often have disproportionate effects on certain groups, particularly um, minority groups, for example. 
So the licensing requirements have different effects on different groups. We know that from uh, several studies that have come out in recent years. So we see that uh, licensing disproportionately impacts uh, people who are immigrants. So they will face uh, challenges when trying to uh, start working in a, start work in a new country. Um, we can think about the wage effects are different by different for different groups. So, for example, uh, a recent study uh, by my colleagues Peter Blair and Bobby Chung has found that there are disproportionate effects for Black men and women entering licensed labor markets. So they have higher wage premiums compared to their unlicensed peers, but this is because fewer people can actually work in these occupations. They find similar effects for women in general, and this is a growing area of research. When I looked at this question, I was looking at whether states licensed more occupations that were predominantly female. So we can see from our Bureau of Labor Statistics and our current population survey data, whether or not an occupation is 50% or more uh, female or male. And so this gives us a sense of basically, is this a predominantly female occupation or not? What I find is there's a 78% correlation between the number of occupations and the number of predominantly female occupations a state licenses. So we can think about the type of occupations a state chooses to license. So you can think about certainly in the healthcare occupation, you have nursing, but you have a lot of personal service occupations like cosmetologists, manicurists, daycare provision, African style hair braiding, shampooing. Uh, there's a lot of occupations which are predominantly female and these end up predominantly licensed. We can think about the disproportionate burden this imposes on women trying to enter the workforce, as well as women who are consumers of these services. So daycare provision is something that becomes a big issue in a lot of US cities where the cost of daycare has skyrocketed in recent years and you don't have as much availability for daycare. Obviously, we want kids to be safe, but there are other measures to ensure that kids are safe without restricting so much entry into the occupation. For example, you can require insurance, bonding. You could even require state certification or registration, or you could have lower requirements for daycare entry. But for example, the District of Columbia wanted to have a requirement for daycare providers to have a college level degree before they could look after small kids. And this is the kind of stuff that can impose significant burdens on women and people who are trying to transition to a new country. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you mentioned it multiple times throughout today's discussion as well, and also consumers too, right? I mean, if we're at the point where, um, you know, many many of us, and even those of us that are, are, are not like, you know, I'm not 80 years old, for example, myself, but we often remember one of the daycare providers in a community growing up was was the, the, the person a couple doors down that was, you know, 14 or 15 or 16 years old for maybe not for two days in a row, but for a certain chunks of the day. I mean, if we're basically saying that, you know, in some states, you literally cannot provide forms of daycare services till you have a college degree. I mean, back to your point that you made a couple of times, this also eventually just rolls all the way down to the consumer level again, right? It's not just about uh, safety and so on and so forth. I mean, someone's got to pay for this at the end of the day, and it's often the consumer. And so we can think about the relative price. So consumers may want pay for higher end potentially uh, consumers may want to pay for higher end daycare that teaches kids about college level topics from a young age that's possible but some people just need someone to look after their kids while they're at work and these are different markets we can think about the general effects these 
type of requirements have on consumers and how it can make it harder for people trying to work full time to stay employed or to continue to have their kids in childcare before they go to school. Right. Um, and, and one thing I was also happy to see you mentioned, it was in your notes for, that I read for this episode, as well as just a couple minutes ago, is, is uh, sort, sort of the, uh, the effect on, on immigrants or newcomers to a country. I mean, um, you know, some people might say, not myself, but some people might say, well, we don't want people coming here from out of nowhere and starting to work in a, in a certain field when we haven't tested them, we don't know about them, whatever. Again, I'm not saying that, but one might make that argument. But one, one interesting sort of more pocket case, if you will, that I want to talk about too is, Unless I'm mistaken, I have heard and read about stories where someone might come from a different country and they have both the uh, theoretical and applied skills to do something, but because of whatever specific criteria for a certain license or whatever regimes in play, they cannot you know, start practicing and using whatever skills that are for all intents and purposes in reality, directly transferable just because they're not in X country, you know, they're now in Y country and they can't practice. So I I think even that to me is is an interesting topic. It seems to always slip under the radar that when it comes to this licensing discussion in general, especially with, with immigrants, from what I've read, it's not just can it, the question isn't just can inexperienced people do something. Sometimes the question is, can experienced people even have an opportunity to do something, at least from my reading? I'm not sure if you've done much studying in that area too, but that's an interesting case to me always. Oh, this is a really important topic, Alex. So there is uh, research that found that immigrants are about 35% less likely than non-immigrants to be licensed in the United States. Uh, this is extreme. Uh, When we think about the extent of uh, occupational licensing in the United States and how many people in the United States need a license to do their job. And the same could be applied in theory to Canada if we get more data on Canada. Um, But for example, uh, I understand that physicians uh, coming from the United States often have a hard time having their medical degrees and license recognized in Canada, uh, whereas it transfers more easily between Commonwealth countries and Canada. But Once you have a medical degree, in theory, you know the material. You don't lose the experience. You don't lose the knowledge just because you've crossed an international border. And so one interesting case is that uh, this spring, uh, Ontario and Nova Scotia uh, actually decided to recognize uh, U.S. um, board-certified physicians uh, when they're coming over to Canada. And so this is an opportunity for them to increase their physician uh, supply. We are both in the United States and Canada about to see a shortfall of health service providers in the next decade. And so we can think about this as a way to improve shortages in areas that we don't have a, another solution for. Um, so Nova Scotia and Ontario saying, we'll recognize you. You still have to basically be supervised for a period before we'll give you the full license, but you can get to work is a grand improvement. When I say it is a it is a significant improvement over you would have to become completely relicensed in Canada before you could start working here. Right. And so that's the kind of material you can think about. And that's just between the United States and Canada. You can think about provinces Uh, in Canada and whether or not they recognize each other's licenses. So this becomes not even an issue between international migration, but domestic migration. And so we do see evidence in the United States that licensing reduces interstate mobility by about 7%, which is going to have a disproportionate impact for certain people more than others. So we can think about uh, cases of trailing spouses, 
So imagine a situation where your partner gets a job in another state or province and they're they, they're moving. The family is going to move with them. But you work in a licensed occupation. You are not guaranteed that your license is going to be recognized in the new state. You would have to get relicensed or go through quasi-relicensing, potentially pass more exams, even if you have years of experience. So uh, to so now in the United States, we have uh, more states adopting universal licensing recognition, which is a policy where states recognize each other's licenses. Um, it doesn't even have to be a mutual agreement between states, which uh, some Canadian provinces have compacts where they agree to recognize each other's licenses. But in this case, states will just recognize your license. You have to go through some paperwork, but your license is recognized and you can get back to work. And so this creates more mobility. Um, what I find with my co-author, Alicia Plemons, um, is that this has positive impacts. So we find that uh, this actually helps households move to states with uh, universal licensing recognition uh, compared to states without it. It also increases tax receipts for those states, if that's something that regulators are interested in. Um, that basically you are getting people to move to your state, potentially filling shortages, um, and the state benefits both from an expanded labor force and the uh, just stronger economy overall through um, more people working there. So this is a really interesting area to explore. And Canada doesn't have a movement quite like this. So it's more, uh, we might recognize your license for a specific occupation, but it's very case by case, or you have compacts between states, but it creates all these barriers to moving between provinces that are not necessary. When you think about how you're all part of the Canadian workforce and People just have to move for various reasons. They should be able to take their experience with them. Right. Yeah. Because, because you know, what one perhaps one could think of an example where, you know, literally moving yourself physically somewhere else might change the nature of a job, you know, I don't know, or something, maybe perhaps an open pit mine versus a closed pit mine or something. But the idea of literally right. moving from Nova Scotia uh, to Ontario and having nursing being radically different between those provinces seems to be a little silly if you bring it down to that point, right? Right. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, and just, just make a funny comment from my end here too. It, it always, it always seems to be interesting when it comes to the occupational licensing discussion that, you know, a lot of uh, the, the uh, people that are claiming to represent public safety and have that as a top concern, a lot of politicians, it seems to be a, uh, you know, a crisis discussion and a no go zone. If someone would even think of either loosening a regulation on some uh, areas of occupation, except when there's a shortage and these people might get voted out, then all of a sudden, you know, they're fixing problems, they're finding keyhole solutions. So as you said, at least that's relatively better. But I do find it's interesting to note when these solutions seems to be acceptable, when nurses can start going between provinces and so on. The timing is interesting, at least. Well, for, for us, Alex, uh, during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we started to see states much more willing to recognize licenses for health occupations from other states, even accelerating uh, whether they would recognize a license from current students or recognizing the license of people who had retired, as in my home state of California. So we can see that there is flexibility here. There are trade-offs. The trade-offs exist between licensing and the other option of greater access to the workforce, better services, for consumers, less expensive services for consumers. And those are choices that regulators are making when they use occupational licensing. Right. 
And I have one more sort of a question for you before we move to the formal wrap up, which is sort of our, our last official question where we'll sum up some things. But before we do that, my one sort of last main question here is that, you know, d- during the break, we were actually chatting a bit about, you know, the availability of data and so on and so forth and whether that, that's good and or bad. And you, you, made, you made some specific points about Canada. So um, and a few times throughout this conversation, actually, you've, you've said that either there is not a lot of data on a certain topic or it'd be better if there was and then we could, you know, make better decisions and so on and so forth. So as a, as a general question, of course, feel free to use some Canadian examples if you'd like, but h- how do we make data better for us to understand occupational licensing or what are the kinds of things you'd like to see from either statistics bureaus or so on and so forth that'll actually help us understand what's, what's really happening out there? This is such an important question, Alex, because without data, we don't have a clear picture of what's going on. We cannot really know the extent of licensing in Canada the actual level of the barrier. So is it, uh, for example, on average, one year of education that is required in Canada, or is it six years? Those are different kinds of barriers. Is it thousands of dollars in fees, or are we talking like $10 in fees? Uh, So one issue is that there's not a lot of data on the licensed occupations in Canada. My colleague Ting Ting Zhang has a great study that came out in 2019 that looked at the status of licensed occupations through 2016 in Canada, but that data is now seven years old. And we can think about the issue of how do we know how many people have a license or certification? So in the United States, uh, we had a question added to our current population survey that asks respondents, do you have a license in a few different ways? And this has been immensely helpful to researchers because we now have more detailed information on who has a license and other characteristics, like how many years of education they have and like where they're located generally. All of this matters, how much they earn. Well, no equivalent no equivalent statistic exists for Canada. So one potential change that could be done is Statistics Canada could try and add a question on licensing and certification status to its survey of labor and income dynamics. So you could get regular data on whether or not people are licensed and that links in with the other information you have. So the extent of their education, their earnings, and so forth. That makes it much easier to consider solutions or remedies once you know the scope of the problem and potentially where it's concentrated. Right. That makes sense. And I'm going to move us to our uh, formal wrap-up here now. Our time is pretty much wound down, and, and we've talked about a lot, all great stuff. So um, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word, Darwin, to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you sort of the official last question here, which is what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how occupational licensing increases barriers for workers, which is our, our theme today. In other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us talk here with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would you like them to take away from all this? I would like them to think about how occupational licensing can serve as a barrier to entry more than necessarily protecting public health and safety. And to think about the impacts this has on people trying to work in licensed occupations the consumers who use these services, and the degree to which, for Canada, we need more information about the extent and scope of licensing. Great. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So, Darwin Deo, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Alex.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.